Job chapter 39, and actually we're going to start really in the last few verses of, of chapter 38. But as we return to our study of Job this morning, remember, um, this is the last section of the book where the Lord appears to Job, and uh, he he appears to Job in a whirlwind, basically a hurricane, or in the Middle East, one of these big Middle Eastern massive windstorms known as a haboob, and uh, it is frightening, and it is terrible. Sometimes we miss that, you know, when, when Job starts talking about the ostrich and the wild oxen. We think maybe it's like this little one-on-one. No, it's this exploding hurricane all around him in the full force of God's glory. And God does this to basically dress Job down for his whininess in the preceding 30-some-odd chapters. Job wanted an audience with God. He got an audience with God. I don't think it went how Job thought it was going to go. It went very, very differently. And I think the big takeaway for us as, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is that this is really preview of coming attractions of judgment. And we will all face judgment one day. We don't hold God accountable. God holds us accountable. We don't get to question God. God gets to question us. And if we are able to make it known to him and the attitude that God wants in Job's life. And I think the attitude that he wants in our life, even as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is an attitude of humility. Of humble acceptance of the sovereignty of God in what he brings about in our lives, no matter what he's brought about, whether it's great, abundant joy and blessing in our lives or tragedy and difficulty in our lives. We understand that it is God who is on the throne And there's a sense, I think, in which we are very much like Job. Remember at the beginning of the book, God pronounced Job blameless and upright, someone who fears God and turns away from evil. Well, there's a sense in which through faith in Christ, we are pronounced with that same declaration. We are blameless in the eyes of God. We are holy in the eyes of God. Nevertheless, we will face God in judgment. We will still give an account to him. And I think what he wants for us in this life as we anticipate that day is humility. I titled this sermon, Almost Repentant, because that's actually what we see um, in this section, is that Job gets close to repentance, but not quite repentance. Even after God appears in this hurricane and peppers Job with question after question after question for almost two chapters, Job does not quite repent. And we will see that a little bit later on in, uh, in chapter 40. We know he doesn't repent because God keeps going for another two chapters. And then we see the the true fruit of repentance. So I want to look at this sort of second part of of the first barrage of questions that God gives to Job. And then I want to unpack Job's sort of non-repentant response. Remember that in all of this, God is showing Job that he is the creator of the universe and he is the sustainer of the universe. He made it all, but he didn't just wind it up and let it go and doesn't care about it. No, he cares intricately about every detail of the universe, every little bit, down to when the mountain goats give birth. That's how intricate it is. That's how much detail God is concerned with and sovereign over Last time we saw his control over the sun, the moon, the stars, and the weather. And here, at the end of chapter 38, we see his sovereignty over even the animal kingdom. So take a look at chapter 38, and we'll just read these last few few verses. So verse 39, God kind of switches from talking about weather and the cosmos to talking about animals. 
And he says in verse 39, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry out to God for help and wander about for lack of food? So this begins kind of God's tour through the animal kingdom. Someone once said that God took Job on safari. Um, and it's kind of true. This is really a fascinating section on uh, on quite a few levels. Um, first, the point is that God is in control of over absolutely every little bit of life there is. Everything that breathes, everything that that, that can be sustained and lives, God is in control over it. And not just in this big kind of scheme, but down to the very details of, of how long animals are in gestation. That kind of control. This is, this is very intimate and caring control. He, he is concerned when they eat. He's concerned when they give birth. He's concerned when they go loose and leave their mom. He's in control of all of that. And it's also fascinating because God finds connections between these animals that Job would never understand. And this is, this is actually what I want to weave for you a little bit this morning is that throughout this whole section, it looks like just a random, like smattering of animals from the zoo. Actually, I, I want to show you how each animal is actually connected to the next. And that's really God's whole point is that, that all of this animal kingdom is connected together through God's sovereign care. And Job can't even contemplate, let alone understand and be sovereign over the eight animals that God's talking about, let alone the thousands and thousands of different species of animals. He's just going to give them about eight categories of animals here. So these are not random animals. We might think that we are, but actually I think once we look at them, the connections will be clear. Let me, let me give you sort of the overview and then, and then we'll kind of dig down into each one. So we saw here in the beginning of verse 39, can you hunt prey for the lion? So God feeds every lion and then he'll transition to say he also feeds the ravens. So there's a connection between God feeding the lions and feeding the ravens. And then we'll see that God is concerned about the birth and care of each little baby chick raven. Every little baby little raven that's on the planet, God cares about. Just, by the way, like he cares about every little mountain goat that's born. So there's a connection between birth, between the ravens and the mountain goats. And then it's good because God actually releases each mountain goat to freedom, just like he releases every wild ox to freedom. And just like you can't trust a wild ox, you also can't trust an ostrich because those things are crazy. And they're crazy because they're big and they're fast and they're mighty, just like the war horse is big and fast and mighty. And then he makes these these connections and just like the warhorse is preparing for a battle that's a far ways away, so too the hawk and the eagle, they prepare for battle a long ways away. But their battle is actually for food. That's why they have such great vision, so they can get their food from a long ways off. Which, of course, completes the circle, because he's concerned about the hawk, but he's also concerned about the lion. And then he wraps it all up together. And you're like, I just thought this was a random list of animals. In God's mind, the point is to snow Job, to overwhelm Job with how intricate all of the, just the animal kingdom is. And how much control he has over just the animal kingdom. He's making connections that Job could never even make. Could never understand how these animals are all linked together. 
And he's just like eight or nine animals. Like that's it. But again, notice, notice the connection at verses 39 through 41. We'll start sort of daisy chaining them together. He says, can you hunt prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Obviously, the answer here is no. When they crouch in their dens or they lie wait, they lie in wait in the thicket. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Job, can you feed the lions? Can you even go out and hunt for them? Do you even know when they're hungry? Like, do you know anything about them? Do you know who provides for them? Yeah, God God provides for them. We saw that actually in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor do they reap nor do they gather into barns. Yet who feeds them? The Heavenly Father feeds them. All these little birds that like trip around. You know, on a warm winter day and you hear all the birds again. They're like, oh, hey, it's time to go get food. Who feeds them? God feeds them. He cares for every single little one of them. All of them. I remember listening to a sermon by Paul Washer uh, on evangelism, and he quoted the last verse in the book of Jonah. And he made an interesting point. This is what the, the verse says. God's rebuking Jonah, and he says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's how the book of Jonah ends. And Paul Washer makes this point. He says, do you realize that God is more concerned about the physical life of cows than we are about the eternal life of most people? Ouch. It's true. Jonah wants everybody in Nineveh to go to hell. God, destroy them. I don't care. God's like, I got all these people. And by the way, I got cows in there. And you're like, God, cows? Really? Like, is that the reason? No, that's not the reason. Like, he's sparing him for the people. But cows are on God's mind, too. Why? Because all of creation is on God's mind. Every little bit of it. It's not like they're nothing to him. They are valuable to him. He loves them. He made them. He put them there. You could try and go off the deep end and say, well, God is equating cows to people. No, he's not. He's just saying it's part of his plan. He takes into consideration the rest of his creation when he's doing stuff including destroying a city. So God cares for animals, and he shows that by feeding them. That's how sovereign our God is. That's how much he cares for every little animal, even the animals that you have in your home. You're like, well, I don't want to feed them. You are the means by which God gives them food. That's what you do. God loves them through you. Now, watch the connection between the ravens and the mountain goats. Again, that connection is with babies. He's concerned about their birthing. So look at chapter 38, verse 41, and then we'll read through the first four verses of chapter 39. He says, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill, and do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out, and they do not return. So God cares for little baby ravens, little baby chick ravens, and he cares for little baby mountain goats. 
Um, now, the mountain goat that is in mind here is probably what's called the ibex. I, I posted a video on our on our Facebook page last night about an ibex. If you don't, if you're not on Facebook or whatever, just YouTube ibex climbing and click the very first video. And, and it's this video of a dam where these ibex are climbing. I think it's like an 85 or a 90% grade just to get a drink of water about 150 feet up because that water has minerals that they need. And they're just like climbing up the side of the dam. They can just get up there. No problem. It's, it's really a phenomenal animal. Um, but the point that, that, that God is making is these ibex can go where no human can go. That's actually their defense mechanism is that they can climb these huge steep canyons. They're like the, the sheer cliffs of the Grand Canyon all around Israel and all around the Middle East. And these ibex can go up and down them like it's just no thing. And that's the way that they protect themselves. That's the way that they are kept safe. And God goes, uh, do you know when the ibex, the mountain goats, give birth? Oh, that's right. You can't even see them from where you're at. You can't even get to where they're Of course you don't know that. You know nothing about them because only I see them. Only I can know where they're at and only I care for them because no other animal can get to them. Do you know when they get pregnant or how long they carry their young? No, because Job can only see these animals from afar. He can't go to where they live. God has designed them that way. And God cares for them even in their, even in their caves. And the ibex, when they grow up, they don't return home. They grow up and they leave. That's what verse 4 says. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and they do not return to them. You know who else that's like? That's like the wild donkey. God says, well, I made the wild donkey too. Look at verses 5 through 8. Who has let the wild donkey go free? So again, there's this connection between freedom. Who lets the ibex go free? God does. Who lets the wild donkey go free? God does. That's the connection in God's mind. Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He doesn't like the noise. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. So why does the wild donkey roam around out in the open the way he does? Because that's how God designed him. God wants donkeys out there just roaming around, just eating, because that's what he wants. That's what brings God pleasure. It's kind of weird that the donkeys that we are familiar with here in the States, they're domesticated. They're pack animals, right? You go deep into the woods or go on a hunting trip or whatever, and you grab some donkeys, you throw some some stuff on them. They're, they're beasts of burden. They can carry your, your, your load down with you. That's not what God is talking about here. These are wild donkeys. They look like kind of similar, like they could, they would be strong enough to, to haul some, some freight out into the open. But these ones are not domesticated. They're kind of like Mustangs. Right? They're just these wild animals that, that, that roam around and no one can subdue them. And you'd, you'd kind of go like, why would God make this animal that looks like it would be a perfect pack animal, like a perfect beast of burden, and they just roam around eating grass? Because God wants that. That's why. God released the animal. He's like, you know what those hills need over there? They need them some wild donkeys. That's what they need. To eat grass. Because in my sovereign wisdom, I need donkeys over there eating grass. Why, God? You don't ask me the questions. 
I want donkeys over there eating grass. That's what I want. End of story. I don't know why. Because that's where he wants the donkeys, and that's where he wants eating grass, and he doesn't want us to do them. He just wants them to wander around. These are perfectly strong, capable animals just to roam around. They can't be contained. You try to contain them, they run away. You know who else runs away? The wild ox. That's what God says. The donkeys are running away, and so are the the wild oxen. You can't contain them either. You want to talk about another big animal that's strong and powerful, and you think, boy, that'd be a great beast of burden. Nah, not so much. It's the wild ox, verses 8 through 12. 8, this is the end of that donkey. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great and will you leave him to your labor? And will you leave to him your labor? Excuse me. Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Can can you bind this this animal up and, and let it plow for you? No, you can't. It's strong and it's powerful. You'd be thinking, man, that, that'd be great to, to do some farming with, like big animal, like we could, we could harness it and, and get it all done real fast. And God's like, can you even keep it tied to the manger? Like, can you take a rope and, and like rope it down? Will it be there in the morning? No, it won't. It's too powerful for you. You can't do that. I didn't design it for that. I designed it to go wander around the mountains, just like the wild donkey. Again, why? We don't get to ask the questions. Just because that's exactly what God has designed. The ox won't help plow the fields. It won't hang out in the barn. God did not make this big, powerful animal that looks perfect for farming. He didn't make it for domestication. In fact, God says the wild ox isn't trustworthy at all. You can't depend on him at all. He's kind of crazy. Sort of like the ostrich. The ostrich is kind of crazy. Ever wonder why God is bringing up the ostrich in Job? He's just making connections. All these connections that we never thought of. So so notice, starting in verse 11 and 12, you can't depend on the wild ox. And then he's going to transition to the ostrich. And you can't depend on the ostrich either because the ostrich is kind of crazy. So on the wild ox, verse 11, will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him to your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? And he transitions. He says, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs on the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. So you can't depend on the wild ox just like you can't depend on the ostrich. And I think we have to be honest, of all the creatures that God has made, the ostrich is one of the weirdest creatures out there. I mean, it's like this 300-pound bird with long legs that can't fly. But it can run like crazy. It can it can sustain, I think it's like 34 miles an hour, hitting top speeds of 43 miles an hour. That's fat. That's like driving down Monroe. That's the ostrich. It's this amazing, it's this amazing creature. 
And it says in verse 13, it has wings and plumage and pinions. Pinions are like the joints or like the elbows of the wing. And this is actually a little bit of a play on words here that even though the, the ostrich can't fly, relatively speaking, it does have big wings compared to, compared to other birds. But, but he's making a little play on words. Um, some of you have, uh, the wings are not wings of love. Some of you have the wings are not the wings of a stork. The word stork and the word wing are, are kind of, are, uh, love and stork are related. And so he's like, they got these big wings, but they're not loving wings. They're not wings like a chicken, you know, that would gather the little chicks in and protect them. No, for, for all the big wings that the ostrich has, they're, they're actually not loving at all. Now, this is probably more than you ever wanted to know about ostriches, so buckle up, okay? Ostriches usually gather in groups of about three to eight. There's one male for every two to, to like seven females, so they, so they have this brood, or technically it's called a harem. So the females, they lay their eggs in a collective spot. That's where they lay their eggs, and the male sits on them overnight. And in the warmer regions, he'll, he'll get off during the day, and he'll go out and do his thing, and some of the other females will come, and they will... And they will sit on the eggs uh, in the cooler parts of the day. In the warmer parts of the day, when the eggs are just left unattended, it looks like nobody cares about the eggs, right? That, that's what God gets at. Like, don't you care that somebody could step on them? They, like, they'll get crushed? Like, wouldn't you want to do that? So, so God is talking from a human perspective. So, so they have this sort of like community raising of the eggs. Then when the, the little chicks come out, it's, it's sort of the same kind of community upbringing as well, where one mom will take care of the, you know, the, the whole nest for a little while and they'll trade. Well, as you can imagine, you you know, you as the mom, you're probably giving special attention to your babies. You don't really care so much about the other babies. And that's why he says she doesn't care about her chicks. She's mean to them. Well, from our perspective, it looks like she's mean. From, from the reality is she just doesn't really care all that much about the other lady's babies. Like that's really the reality. So this is, this is what's, this is what's going on. Um, so again, God is speaking like from a, from a human perspective. And that's why in verses 16 and 17, it looks like she's being cruel. So she deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. Because God has made her forget wisdom and giving, given her no share in understanding. God says the reason that they do this is his doing. He's actually not given the ostrich wisdom. That sounds really weird. Like God made the ostrich dumb. But that's kind of what he's saying. It's like, why does the ostrich act this way? Why do they not protect their eggs individually? Why do they leave them in the sand and cover them with dirt? And that's sort of, like, why? Because that's how God made them. God made this big, fast bird that can't fly, that is cruel to each other's young, just because. Because that's what he wanted. That's his prerogative. You can't trust the ostrich just like you can't trust the wild ox. And then on top of it, on top of all of that, the ostrich is fast and furious. Like, like if you see an ostrich in the wild, like you don't want to be around it. They are furious. You, you stay away from, from these things. Kind of like you stay away from a war horse with a warrior on top. Notice the, notice the transition that he makes. Verse 18, when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exalts 
exults, excuse me, in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. So here we have this this big, powerful battle horse. In ancient times, horses were the uh, equivalent to tanks. They were just strong. They were powerful. They could run over people that were just standing there. You could deck them out in armor and they could just plow, plow right through them. And he has strength because God gives him strength. He has hair because God gives him hair. He can jump. This is like 1,200 pounds plus a rider, plus all the armor, plus everything else. He can jump through the air like a locust. I, I, I watch those, what is it called when they're like on the horse and they're jumping around? What is it? Dressage. Yeah, I would never, ever do that. Like, why would you trust this horse to jump around? Like, and you're on top of it. Like, I saw Superman. The horse killed Superman. Like, you would never do that. But the, but the horse can do this. Why? Because God made him powerful enough to do this. He's not afraid of, of war sounds. Um, I'm, I'm reading, like, my third, or listening to my third biography on the the American Revolution and George Washington had two different horses and he went back and forth between each one to give him a break each day. And, and it's just like, like even the description of his horses, how powerful they are. They're not afraid of cannon fire at all. They'll just ride into whatever he's telling them to ride into. Like they are just amazing animals on every level. Why are they amazing? Because God made them amazing. That was his sovereign purpose to make them amazing. They hear the battle from far off is what he says in verse 25. The thunder of the captains and the shouting doesn't bother him. In the middle of war, doesn't bother them at all. By the way, what's Jesus coming back down on? A white horse. Our king comes into battle. That's what he's coming on. A white horse to destroy all of his enemies. And then we see there's a connection. The horse sees the battle from afar. That's verse 25. And then we'll call it a raptor, the hawk and the eagle. They see their food from afar. Look at verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out his prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. So the thing that connects those two together is that they perceive the battle, death, from a long way off. The horse can tell when it's time to go in verse 25. The hawk knows when to, when to go attack um, in verses 29 and 30. The two birds that are listed here are sort of a catch-all term for all hawks and eagles. Both of them live in places that are very difficult to get to. They fly up. And, and I think most of you guys know that, that there are some species of, of hawks that can see small little critters at over a mile away. Their eyesight is absolutely amazing. Why do they do that? Why don't they go up closer? Well, because God designed them to do this. That, that's the refrain over and over. Why are they like this? Because God made them like this. God designed them to be like this. 
And I don't want to get all Lion King on you, but this is sort of like a circle of life moment here. Well, what he says is, is, is he, he returns back to the small ones, the little ones. Right? So verse 29, from there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away, and his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. Right? So you see how he connects it all the way back to the lion, and then all the way back to the raven. All the way back to feeding these guys, and all the way back to their little ones. This is what God has done. He's, he's brought it full circle. How do we know that? Well, because he ends. Chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Answer me, Job. Do you know any of this stuff? Who made the hawk go and get his prey from afar? Who made that? I did. I designed it. I designed every little bit of all of creation, every animal, all of their connections, everything together down to the very last detail. I take care of all of it. And he calls him a fault finder. It's like an ambulance chaser. You're just following people trying to throw blame. That's what you're doing. You're a fault finder. And you're going to find fault with me. Do you even know when the Ibex gives birth? Can you control anything? Can you even keep that donkey wrapped in your manger or by your manger? No, you can't. You know nothing. And so when you're trying to find fault with me, you are in the wrong. You want to argue with God? Let him answer it. Let's hear the answers. How long do the Ibex gestate? Just want to know. No? Don't know? You don't find fault with God. That's what he's saying. Job's a fault finder. I mean, think about this. God mentioned like eight or nine animals and Job is speechless. He's got nothing to say. Like, like just this like little bitty fraction of the animal kingdom. And Job's like, I'm done. I got, I got nothing. Now here's the thing. You'd think this would be enough for Job to repent. You'd think this would be enough for him to turn around, but he doesn't. Notice Job's reply or, or better yet, Notice what's not there. This is the more important thing. What's not in Job's reply? Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. His response is basically to fearfully stop talking. But that's not enough. That's a good start, but it's not enough. And this is important for us to understand in the Christian life. We really need to understand what true repentance is. As Martin Luther said, when we are called to follow Jesus, to repent and follow him, this is a life of repentance. So we need to know what repentance looks like. So repentance is not just confession. A lot of people think that as long as they just confess their sin, that that is enough, that that's all that God is looking for. Others think that simply stopping the action that you're doing is enough. Okay, well, I'll just stop. I won't do it anymore. This is what I did. I won't do it anymore. That's enough. No, that's that's also a good start, but that's not true repentance. And this is what we see with Job. We see that, that he thinks that just not talking anymore is enough. To make up for all the damage that he's done. He says, behold, I am of small account. 
Verse 4, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay, God, I'll be quiet. I'll stop what I'm doing. It's a good start. That, that should happen, but that's that's really not what God's getting at. We know that because God goes on again for another two chapters, barraging him with all these questions to get him to the point of humility. True repentance is more than that. Look over at chapter 42. We'll unpack this more in a few weeks. But look at the difference. After two more chapters of the barrage of whirlwind and questions. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's quite the difference. Quite the difference. He confesses his specific sin. In fact, the very words that he was using against against God He states precisely that what he has said was wrong. He uttered what he did not know. He was talking nonsense. And then at the end, he says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. This is how you know when someone is repentant, at least that they're on the road to repentance. It's that they hate themselves for the sin they've done. They are owning their sin. They're not blaming it on other people. They're not casting it aside or minimizing it. No, they they are actually struck by what they've done on the inside. They hate what they've become. That doesn't sound PC to our world. You just got to love yourself more. No. The more we understand who we are, the more wretched we are, the more we despise ourselves, and the more thankful we are to the grace of God. That's the gospel. That's why the apostle Paul can say, I am the chief of sinners. The apostle Paul, I don't think he's being hyperbolic. I think he actually believes himself because he knows his heart. He knows what's on the inside. This is where Job finally gets to. I despise myself. I hate my sin. In the sight of a holy God, I can't imagine this. It's not just I despise the consequence for my sin. No, I despise my sin. Do you hate that you're a sinner? Did you hate that you commit the same sins over and over again? Ones that you've been battling? Is, is part of your longing for heaven that, that you don't sin anymore? That, that should be part of the longing. There's no more sin. There's no more blemish. The fight with the flesh is gone. In the meantime, we despise our sin. No qualifications, no attempt to justify ourselves, no attempt to share blame. God wants people who repent, who hate their sin, and they love the Savior because he has covered over our sin. He wants people to repent. Repent means to change your mind so much that your actions change as well. That's what repentance is. 
It's not just agreeing with somebody, though it includes that. It also includes a change of direction for your life. Your actions change because your mind's been changed. And Job signals his repentance to everybody by putting on dust and ashes. He, he covers himself in this. We've seen this before. This sackcloth and ashes are a public sign to everybody of mourning. So people will come up and go, Job, what you mourning about? Well, I despise my sin. I'm, I'm so sad that I am sinful and that I have mischaracterized God and I've called God to account as though God would ever give me an account. This is a, this is a public demonstration of his sorrow because he has offended the Almighty. He thought he could contend with the Almighty. What in the world was he thinking? It's a public profession of turning from sin. A public profession that God is always 100% in the right to do whatever he wants with all of creation, including Job's life. This is the humility that God wants Job to have. And this is really the gospel. When we offer the gospel of forgiveness, it includes a call to repent. It's not just, hey, yeah, you get... Heaven in the golden streets. No, it's you get God, the holy God, who calls you to live a life of blamelessness and repentance the whole way through until you see him in glory. And in the meantime, what God wants from his people is a soft heart. I don't know about you, I get tired of repenting. In my home, saying the things I shouldn't say, doing things I shouldn't do. I'm kind of lazy, I'll be honest, like repenting from that. Like when we get to heaven, you all, there's no repentance there. Because what we, what we only know by faith will be sight. And all that sin will be washed away. In the meantime, stay humble. Let your heart be soft to repent in light of the glory of God and the judgment we'll face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That though many times you are severe and you discipline us as we need disciplining, yet what you desire in us is humility. May we not be people who are almost repentant. May we be people who are soft to our sin and who are fully repentant. And by so doing, show who we really give glory to, not ourselves, but you, through your son, Jesus. Amen.